You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. We do it because our mind palace is a lot more cooler than 100 degree Texas weather. I'm Aparna Verma. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 110. Seriously, religion, prophecy, politics, and tradition. Our titles have gotten far more pun-heavy in the past year or so, and longer. I think partly because we like have to make sh- make it clear, like, this is a different religion episode than the other religion episode we did. It's neat. I like when we have unexpected synchronicity between our themes. We, we've, we've kind of been in that zone for the past few episodes, actually. Been rolling, been rolling. Anyway, hello friends, welcome back to another fun episode, and we have another amazing, astounding guest. Aparna, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us what you're all about? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, when Marshall sent me the email, I was like, did I just get invited to the Oscars? Like, <laughs> so honored. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Um, my name is Aparna. I am a... Indian American author who loves uh, mythologies, loves old myths, not just from India, but from all across the world and loves to incorporate that in my stories. Um, I also love horses, which sadly, I haven't found a good barn yet out here in Texas. So I'm I'm like trying to find a place where I don't die in this heat. So we'll see if I'll get there. Um, But my very first book does not have horses, unfortunately, but it does have phoenixes. And it's called The Phoenix King. It's an Indian-inspired sci-fi fantasy. So think Dune meets Game of Thrones. Um, and it's about an assassin, an heiress, and a tyrant struggle for power when a vengeful god reawakens and threatens to send a prophet to burn the sinners. That, very religious, very like prophecy-esque, and very on theme with, with, this, with this topic. That is really cool. Sorry, it just made my brain go blank. And then I was also thinking about <laughs> horses in Texas. And- <laughs> so one of the one of the things that we always like to ask our guests when when they join us um, before we dive into the episode's specific topic is what is it that you love about world building? What parts of the process and what parts of building a world just really bring you a lot of joy when you're putting it together? Yeah, well, I. I think for me, the the best part about world building are like the subtle things or the subtle Easter eggs that you as an author place as almost little gifts to yourself when you reread. Um, and when readers discover these nuggets, it feels like you're sharing this big secret. Um, so for me, like, for example, in The Phoenix King, one subtle thing that I did uh, was that certain, the Ravani, say suns instead of year because you know one year is basically one revolution around the sun so they call it suns their goddess is the phoenix so there's a lot of you know worship of the sun and a fire of light um and no only a few people got that they're like suns like 
she said that she's 25 sons old. Like, what the heck does that mean? Like, what is happening here? And I think when people click like, oh, a year is one son. I think like that was, just, it's just like a very small thing. But it's like, once you know the lingo, it's like, you're in the cool person's club. Like you're in like the <laughs> cool readers club. And that to me is like the best part about world building. It's like you kind of enter a different world without really, without too much effort to either, you know, it's, it's just a slight subtle change and suddenly like another world like envelops you. I, I always love doing that sort of thing though. It, it, it always does feel like the, the balance of making it feel like you're showing another culture and how they represent things without it also feeling like you're trying too hard to just use a different word. <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah. Which can always be the, the, the weird balance there, but, but you're right when it, when it starts, when it starts to work and it becomes something that feels natural, then, then it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just thinking of there. There's one episode of Voyager, which is kind of one of the re more reviled episodes of Star Trek Voyager. But um, <laughs> Chakotay ends up with these soldiers, and the way they talk, like they do, they do with that exact thing with the language, where so many normal words are just replaced with some sort of synonym. So. And it just feels really weird and awkward. Like instead of eyes, they or looking, they say glimpses. Instead of instead of enemy, they say nemesis. Like it just little things like that that makes it feel so weird and off putting. But like the whole point of the episode, spoilers for a twenty five year old episode of Star Wars, Star Trek, um, is that they're literally like indoctrinating him to like trick him into thinking that they're the good guys when they're not actually the good guys. Um, and so he starts adopting their modes of language. So by the end of it, he is using it as naturally as they do. And it's, it ends up being weirdly effective that way. Yeah. That's like a, it's kind of a very much mind manipulation. Yeah. I think those sort of linguistic tricks are also the, the like you said, the, the fun things for fans to pick up on. And when they start, writing fanfic which is always been my dream to run across to, to know people writing fanfic it's like those are the sorts of things that really key on a world that when they start getting the lingo when they start getting those patterns of speech um i think that's a lot of fun and gives them gives them hooks to play with when they play in the world it's not just like you know like the lingo it's also gestures i remember when um i had so i had first self-published a earlier an indie version of the phoenix king called the boy with fire before orbit um bought the trilogy and i remember when the book came out and like i was um sneaking on this one reader's um reading like thread i think that's what it's called like current like currently reading threads like currently reading and they tagged me so i was like oh okay let me see their all like you know like you know in time reactions a possibly harrowing moment, really, anytime this. <laughs> that, that is one of those things that, like, I know I should never do, but I always do because... We can't help ourselves. And um, this girl, uh, she, the reader said, you know, there's this one gesture where uh, for greeting, um, they, in uh, a Ravani or Sanai greeting, like, they kiss their three fingers and place it on the person's forehead. Um, and that's like a custom mostly given to like family and close friends. So it's like, you don't do it just to a person on the street. Like it's to your, like your relatives and your really close ones. And uh, she saw 
in the first 50 pages two of the characters do that to each other and she's she responded like she tagged i guess one of her friends like can we do this like when we get together (laughs) oh that's so cute i was like that's yes go do it like you know of course we can't say that but i was just like that's so cool like you know so it's like little things it's not just the lingo it's also the gestures i mean we've seen that with um the hunger games I was just going to say, yeah, the salute. Yeah, the three-finger yeah. salute, but we're also seeing it in real-world implications. I'm forgetting the name. There was, like, this protest out, I think, I think it was somewhere in Southeast Asia, where they were using the Hunger Games three-finger, like, you know, sign of revolution. And that was, like, that, to me, tells me, like, that novel has not just transcended like the page it's it's it became so much more meaningful in real-time revolutions and so that was really interesting for me to see when i was when i was young and i think like i've always wanted to build up to a moment like that one day that's really cool that's a really neat neat thing that happened that's that's almost chilling like i feel like if that started happening with something in my books i'd be like whoa that's this is gone. This is gone so far beyond. <laughs> I'm, I'm just supposed to write silly things. It's not supposed to have real meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oops. Oops. Created a social movement by accident. That wasn't the plan. <laughs> well, speaking of social movements, that was a halfway decent segue. You were here to talk with us about religions and traditions and, and things like that inside inside of our worlds that we build. And this is this is a topic that I find fascinating, and we've sort of been on this theme for a couple of episodes now, which is really great. What is it that, that makes that a cool part of world building for you? What makes you want to, to dive into religion and use religion as a, what it sounds like, a foundational basis for the plot, too? Yeah, um, so I guess the, the second part of like what makes world building so exciting for me is creating the religions and the myths. So I always like you know i remember uh, my editor at, at one point asked me it's like you know what are your some of your favorite chapters to write and i was like the myth ones you know um and there's like these section breaks in the phoenix king where there's two myths like one is about the last prophet of the phoenix and the other one is about the first um the founding father of the ravani kingdom um and it's written in this like more so like like a fable like a like a myth um and i just love uh writing in that style i love that sort of thing so much yeah i mean for just for just those little like interstitial bits of like <laughs> by the way here's a myth a little flavor a <laughs> little flavor dabbed in there a little a little el herrera and the lettuce so, you know yeah. <laughs> it gives you a little bit more insight right into the world and one of the things i also loved uh about giving like what I call like a little sprinkle sprinkle is at the beginning of each um, chapter, there's like a little section from like a a textbook or a a article from the world itself. So I have the book next to me. So in the first, like in the first chapter, I love those sorts of things. So, so much. (laughs) It says the King said to his people, we are the chosen and the people responded chosen by whom? from chapter 37 of the great history of Seon. Um, and that kind of sets up <laughs> the book, right? Of like, who are we chosen by, by the way? Like, you know, who are the gods? Um, and so that kind of gets thwarted and, and mixed. Um, but to me, like, that's what's so 
that's what kind of gets me going about world building and, and creating a story is how do religions mix and match together? Because realistically, they do that in our real world. You know, we will, I think people like to think that um, different religions like Hinduism is very different from Christianity, right? It's a monotheistic versus Hinduism. People think it's polytheistic, but it's also monotheistic in some ways. What we realized in the, our real world is that there's so many similar story structures and lessons and characters, quote unquote, that you'll find in in all kinds of epics uh, and all kinds of stories. So the Odyssey and the Mahabharata are actually these big, like, you know, they have the structure of like frame narratives where there's stories within stories and stories. And it's also revolved around, uh, you know, adventures and journeys. Um, and it's really interesting because you think like the Greeks and the Indians, like it's very different, like, you know, they're, they were polytheistic at that same time, but they never really, like, did they ever really meet? And you start to learn because of the Silk Road and of trade, a lot of borders are solid today were actually very thin like people ideas kept exchanging and i know i'm pe preaching to the choir here um <laughs> uh, but I, I i feel like that has to be mirrored in our books and in seeing like how there's the religion of the phoenix uh which is what the first book is very much centered on uh, in the phoenix king but you'll as you start to see people from other different kingdoms they also have their own religions and you start to see actually is a phoenix similar to the goddess of the yumi is it similar to the great serpent of the shasharians uh and that's what i really love is like when these characters realize we are actually cut from the same cloth and that makes me uncomfortable <laughs> like oh i thought i thought we were very different and that made it okay to do whatever i'm doing but now oh it's awkward yeah, I was I, like, your war crimes are actually my war crimes, too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Like, oh. I love stuff like that. My my day job is working for mythology-themed summer camps, and a lot of what I do is crafting the stories that we work with and, and then doing, like, year-round engagement. And so I constantly have my head in all these things, and we are always trying to branch out with what mythologies we're working with, right? We don't want it to be just the Greeks and, and all that stuff. We're, we're trying to find the echoes and the resonances but at the same time, we often still have to use the Greeks as a touchstone because that's what our kids are most familiar with. So, like, it's often finding, like, these stories elsewhere. And I love finding those echoes. I love finding similar patterns, like you said, or, or how many different versions of a creation story that has to do with, an, with, an, with a world egg. And, like, they're from all over the place, and they're wildly different in their flavor. But just the idea that this, this basic concept is something that so many cultures latched onto. And I also love seeing how, I love seeing how deities change when they move. This is something that just fascinates me. I love it. Um, I was recently doing one on um, Cibele, um or Cibele, however you want to pronounce that one, who was an Anatolian goddess who ended up in Greece and Rome. And the Greeks were not that comfortable with her because she was she was a, a mother figure goddess who was also a goddess like of the wilds. And her cult had a lot of, of really interesting elements to it. Priests that would castrate themselves in ecstasy and then throw their genitals around. It was, it was a whole thing. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> that is a choice. That is a choice it's you can fun. make. It's a big choice that someone made. <laughs> and so the Greeks were like, 
not super comfortable with this transgression that she represented. And and they sort of tried to keep her cult sort of walled off. And it's like, okay, well, y'all can do that over there. Maybe hang out next to the Dionysians. That's fine. You all can do your revels together, whatever. But then when she gets imported to Rome, the Romans love her. They make such a big deal out of her because they see her as a progenitor of their race because she's from Anatolia, Asia Minor, which is where the Romans thought they came, you know, they, their their cultural myth was that they came from the Trojans. And so they adopted her as a protectress of the city because they were like, oh, we're like your grandchildren. This is great. We love you. This is fantastic. And she doesn't fully lose her wilder elements, but they're sort of carved out into specific times. Like, it's okay on these days for you all to go wild, but not the rest of the calendar year. Um, We have other festivals for the rest of the calendar year when different people are going wild in different ways. And I just love that. I love how the the figures themselves and the worship of them can change when they're moving from culture to culture. I agree. And I think for me, what what makes it personal is how you know characters kind of grapple with their faith um as like you know their the 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 deity kind of transforms over their lifetime you know um in 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 like the phoenix king there's three different main characters and each grapple with the religion of the phoenix very differently um and for me it it was very personal because it was the phoenix to me was very much modeled off of Kalima or Makali in Hinduism, who, um, you know, I, I friggin' blame Indiana Jones and the Temple <laughs> of Doom. I have you to say you it. Should. Yeah. Like, I only <laughs> gasp. It's like culturally, like, uh, appropriation. Like, of course it was. But, like, you know, and like, I think it kind of set the tone of how the West sees Kalima mm-hmm. as like this, you know, demoness you know um you know for those i guess people who don't know I like mean, you know in the west that's pretty much the only exposure people had at all <laughs> so unless they had the foresight to look deeper but yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and so like you know let me chase away your your, your prejudice <laughs> and tell you exactly who kalima is and she is um a warrior goddess of within Hinduism and you know people think she is monstrous because she has a garland of skulls and she has these big white eyes and a red rolling tongue and has like multiple arms some with what holding weapons um and some depiction she's holding uh a decapitated bleeding head she's just fashionable and multitasking yeah (laughs) who among us doesn't want to wear a necklace of skulls from time to time really like yeah six arms useful want it Exactly. And and so uh, what's interesting to me is how a, a figure can be interpreted interpreted differently uh, among different groups of people. And, and that's, Kalima is like a big example. While, while like for those of, you know, who grew up with Hinduism and have a, a natural or a close affinity, intimate affinity with Kalima like I do, I see her as a mother, as a protector like the Greeks did. Uh, with their goddess, um, because she came into the world when it was in dire need of a protector. She was able to take the extra step to commit whatever needed to be done, to do whatever needs to be done, like any mother, to protect her children. And so it, it 
it, she kind of takes on this different Paul of being a protector rather than being a monster. And that's something that I think we see, especially among goddess figures, uh, especially goddess figures of foreign or Eastern religions. Um, and that's something like, even like in, it's not just how the West sees it, but I think it's also somehow, you know, people within um, Eastern different subcultures can also view each other's religions differently. Um, and that's where we get to see that conflict and get to see people grappling with their faith of like, is this a goddess? Is this a monster? Et cetera. Yeah, I like that idea of of the grapple and that being a good hook for a character, because I think even if it's just, you know, within one faith, within within what you're used to or within one deity, a character's understanding of their relationship to that deity or to that practice or whatever it is can be another good touchstone. Like, I have done this ritual every day of my adult life for some reason, because that's what my culture does. But I just kind of do it by rote. I wasn't really thinking about it until something happens. And all of a sudden, I get it. I understand the significance of this ritual and it has a deeper meaning for me. Or something happens that shatters my understanding of this ritual and I don't understand why we do it all the time. And I'm going to make that, you know, the thing that I investigate. Um, I think those are all really fun things to play with for for characters and, and gives them really, really heartfelt, like deep, that's deep character stuff to work with, um, which is juicy and fun. Yeah, I think as, as writers, we love when um, there's that conflict, like, you know, the, where you can feel the characters warring within themselves um, of where their loyalties lie, but where their beliefs lie, um, especially. Um, there's this one character who, in the book, who's the tyrant king, and he very much manipulates the religion for his own political gain, which isn't unlike some like leaders that we've known in this world what what who would do that (laughs) you know so i i feel like um it's funny how we you know we we talk about like you know sci-fi and fantasy it's like the separate world with this cool lingo and cool gestures but when we get down to the heart of you know religion and and faith we realize it mirrors uncomfortably close to our own (laughs) Well, that's interesting, too, because I feel like one of the things that can happen in in fantasy, and I think in science fiction particularly often, is that religion can end up feeling old. It can end up feeling Mm. musty. It can end up feeling leftover, you know, like like it hasn't changed in in 4,000 years. It has always been this way, and it will always be this way. But that's, that's almost never the way... The, the world works. Um, I mentioned in their other episode, schisms, schisms left, right, and center, and synchronization and, and adopting new ideas. So how, how do we as writers create religions in our worlds that are dynamic and living and breathing and not just the thing carved in stone that's that's been there forever and hasn't been questioned and is just the way things are? One of the things I loved that they did on Babylon 5, which is set a few centuries in the future, where humanity is, you know, in space and with a bunch of aliens, is not only show how, like, human religion has adapted to to being in, you know, in space with aliens, but new religions have popped up, taking into account the fact that, hey... Our view of the universe has clearly changed, <laughs> given that all these aliens. Exist. So, what what religions come about because of that? So, it has, and all the various characters are, you know, express that in different ways. Including um, one of the main characters is Jewish, and at one point, like her rabbi comes to the station, 
you know, like her childhood rabbi comes to the station to visit her, and they're eating some alien food. And he's like, well, is this kosher? And she's like, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's, it's not from a pig it might be from a space pig i, I don't know he's like and he's like that, that that would be a fun thing to debate of like is this does this qualify because it does not is not under these headlines but that is a fantastic um, rabbinical answer like yeah this will be fun to debate yes <laughs> and they also do that with the alien religions like at one point one of the aliens it needs to do a ritual at a specific time like it has to happen like when the sun is rising at a certain time and if you don't do it then then that time is passed and it also requires the seeds of a specific plant and because somebody just wanted to be an asshole to him they like took the plant that he was getting shipped and like <gasps> hit it and then and then after like the time had passed they're like oh here you go and he's like Ugh. and then but then the cap <laughs> the captain was like hey i just did a little bit of math and your home star is 12 however many light years away so the light from the sun from the right day on 12 years ago is just reaching us here now <laughs> would that oh, be good enough for your ritual <laughs> fixed it with math that's great i love that yeah i feel like once we it, it, once we get further out into space and and if we get further out into space i choose to believe that some century we will it's going to create new gods. It's going to create new faiths. Like, but also if new representations of the faiths that exist. Yeah, like, yeah. like if we have the ability to travel faster than light, there's going to be things that go along with that. There's going to be religious rituals around that because that's scary. You need protection to do things like that. Or there's going to be a god of the hyperspace lanes. Um, yeah. I know for the next book in the lady astronaut series that mary robinette cole's doing because her main character is jewish and is now on mars for for this book she actually consulted with rabbis of like what this would mean to be like like what is what is a day what is sunrise what is sunset what what like oh, i'm so excited wh for that what is what is the lunar cycle like how do you decide what's the right thing to do when you're on mars yeah Oh, I love that. That's so cool. Oh, I'm so excited. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see how that how that plays out in the book. But knowing Mary Robinette and knowing how meticulous she will be about that sort of thing, the fact that she consulted with rabbis, like, oh, beautiful. I know, it's going to be so cool. So if we're thinking about how our religions, you know, shift and change and what pressures they're responding to and what pressures characters are responding to as they negotiate their relationship with faith and stuff. Thinking about how religion and politics, religion and other other defining forces in a world, um, other points on the matrix of identity, um, which is something else we've sort of been theming, talking about a lot this season. How do we bring those things together? How do we weave those together? I cheated because A, I was using Roman stuff and <laughs> Their religion was very much a state religion. It was baked right in. Like, there are certain things, like, I can't do this political thing until a certain other religious thing happens. Or, Senate can't meet today. Why not? Oh, it's, it's nefasti. We just can't. The gods said so. <laughs> like, <laughs> things like that. But those are the kinds of things that I think, like I said, I just stole them. I, I, I cheated and stole them from history. 
But those are the kinds of things that I think bring great flavor to a world, but they can also be used for interesting, interesting character development stuff. I think for me, what's, what's interesting is religious manipulation. We were talking about brainwashing a little bit earlier. Well, Marshall, you were talking about like using lingo um, in that not so great Star Trek episode. <laughs> uh, but I think there, there's something to be said about that, um, of how people can use these systems of beliefs of power where you feel like, like because it's couched in centuries of tradition, um, and usually, you know, backed by historical texts, by religious texts, you, there's this degree of truth that comes with it, right? And so I think when when we start to use these, you know, when, like characters, when they start to go up against these religions and start to question, you know, what really is, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to um, look out? What does it mean to um, protect your daughter? Um, what does it mean um, to be a good king? What does it mean to be a good husband, et cetera, et cetera? We start to see the character going up against these like centuries of teachings and seeing them like almost like for me, it's interesting when they start to lose themselves in it. So, for example, um, one thing that I found I, this is, I don't know if you guys, this is older, so maybe it's Battlestar Galactica. The fact that you called that older is just... You're, kill you're killing Marshall here. You're, you're killing him. You're killing me. <laughs> you're killing me a little, but not as much as you're killing Marshall. <laughs> Sorry, but like, to me, it's like an older show. Um, and I... I, <laughs> I mean, technically, you're right. I mean, you're right. not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it just hurt. I think it's a, it was a great show. So I think it, it was awesome. Um but there, there are moments when, like, the characters, and you, again, it's it's funny, like, going back to your, your question earlier, Cass, like, how are you saying, like, religion kind of feels old, it feels dusty, it feels ancient in SFF, uh, especially, like, science, especially in space. Like, you know, what are we doing with these, like, religions? And then you see Battlestar Galactica, and they're very much in conversation with this religion of Earth that they're trying to find. Um, and what's really interesting to me is how, you have this idea of prophecy that comes in where the president she, or who she who used to be a teacher and is the last cabinet member to be alive automatically becomes president and she starts to see these prophecies and you start to see her grapple between like what is truth like what is real and what's like is this something that can be should we go to earth or should we focus on survival here and now what do the gods even matter when we ourselves are suffering and we don't have food. The the robot aliens are chasing us and killing us. Like, what time do we have to worship these gods that came to me in a dream? You know, I think like that's where we start to see a lot of that character building because it, it comes to a crux, right? Like when, when the stakes get so high where a character has to choose, do I continue to believe in this faith that was taught to me, you know, for years and years that I grew up with? Or do I break away from that and choose another faith? Or do I not choose to believe in the gods altogether? And I think that's a lot, that's a rich character development for good or for bad. You know, you could see however way the character goes on with it. That element of prophecy is, is so fascinating because that is such a double-edged sword. It I feel so like, is. <laughs> I feel like both for the characters and sometimes for the writer. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes... It as a writer, it can define a lot of like what you then have to like pay off and work with further down the line, especially if it's like a multi book series and it's like, 
Oh, okay. I got to deal with it one way or another, whether the prophecy comes true or is subverted or comes true in a different way. I got to do something with it. I can't just lay a prophecy out there (laughs) and make a big deal out of it. Here, here's where it gets interesting. It's like who, from what prophecy is this, um, is this what religion is this prophecy coming from and does another religion comment on that yes yes and that's where we because so so like you know like even in our world we all every religion has a doomsday right like every like but there's different ways of how it arrives and that's like to me like that was you know that we can like mirror that in our own world building like you know say like you know um uh, you have a group of characters where the prophecy is, you know, a prophet will come and burn the sinners of the desert and like only the faithful shall survive. And you have another group, um, say an Islanders who say like, actually, that's a false God. That's not a real God. You're worshiping the wrong thing. This is the real God. So I think like, and this is how the prophecy is going to be manifested in 10 years. And that's where you start to see kind of like the threads getting pulled apart of like the character's beliefs and also the world of like how the world like operates within these systems of belief. Yeah. And like, are people trying to bring about the prophecy or are they trying to avoid it? Which at least in certain modes of storytelling is the surest way to run yourself straight into it is by trying to avoid it. Yeah. It just presents them with like lots of interesting questions to, to, like you said earlier, to grapple with, like how seriously do we take it? Are there people who have devoted themselves to trying to untangle the prophecy and figure out what it really means? There's a really good episode of um, Star Trek Deep Deep Space Nine that focuses on that. That's like, there's this prophecy. It's, it's, which one is it? It's fairly early on. It's, it's one where there's a prophecy about. Oh, about the comet and. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and someone's interpreting it as like being these Cardassian scientists that are here to visit. And it's just, they will destroy the, they will destroy the wormhole and really it's going to be, and it really ends up being something else that then. Yeah. It means something completely different, but the whole episode is about the characters like negotiating with the, the one faction that very much believes not just in the prophecy, but in their particular interpretation of the prophecy as applicable to this moment. And then some other people of faith who aren't quite sure that it's being interpreted correctly. And then, of course, you've got some of the Starfleet officers going, what are you people talking about? This is all <laughs> nonsense. This is, what? What, what, are, you t- what are you even talking about? Um, it's just really fun to let that episode pulls at it from all of those different angles. Uh, I mean, that is always the challenge of, like, writing in the writing, of writing something that can be interpreted different ways or is that or is somehow vague while at the same time making me once you get to your revelation be like oh okay that makes sense while i mean so many things that i've read have like leaned on just making it look sort of weird and poetic and then (laughs) but like I'm going to do my bit of ranting about the Belgariad, um, because this is one of the things that they do so much. (laughs) Drink. Take Um, a shot. (laughs) Because so many times, like, the characters are like, oh, the prophecy is so confusing and so weird. But then when they give you the text, it's not, it's incredibly straightforward. Just like each of the people involved are given some sort of, like, poetic like iconic name but other than that it's pr- it's like it's like, like reading once you work Shakespeare- out the epithets 
Yeah. It's like reading Shakespeare. Like, it's not really hard. You're just like, it's like, if you wanted this weird, you should have made it like reading Finnegan's Wake. Like, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what the fuck the prophet was on when he wrote this. But no, it's pretty. But you have these characters going like, I don't know. It's so hard to understand. It's so weird. Like, is it? Is it, though? I have to do this with my kids. At work, because part of each week's quest is receiving a prophecy, because that's a very standard part of the myth, you know. And I have to write them to be not immediately giving everything away, but not so hard that the kids can't figure it out. Because we want them to figure it out. We want them to feel like they've, you know, they've picked up on the clues. And occasionally I will write something and my boss will look at me and go, this is too obscure. No one has any idea what this means. (laughs) You have defeated the purpose. And I'm like, but it's a good prophecy. (laughs) And it's in dactylic hexameter. So there. (laughs) He'd be like, the kids don't know what that is either. You need to rewrite this. (laughs) But even in your source material in the Percy Jackson books, like those prophecies from the Oracle they are essentially supposed to be like, here's a little puzzle for you yes. to solve. Like, yes. that's explicitly like, That's part of how you prove point. yourself a hero, is figuring out... <laughs> As opposed out to just like, here is the ravings of a madman. It might mean something. We yeah, don't know. literally a crossword <laughs> puzzle in one of the Trials of Apollo books. Like, the prophetess literally delivers her prophecy in the form of a crossword puzzle. <laughs> and I loved that so much. I thought that was hilarious. But yeah, when you think about, like, the Pythian oracles, who were possibly, some of them at least, depending on the century, just absolutely high on on the, the smoked herbs. It's like, they would have been writing some, some just absolutely wild stuff. Just opium-induced haze of, of words. And yeah, more, more, more fiction should embrace that. Who was the one that was just like, on top of like a volcanic crevice and just, just... Just sucking in sulfur and... <laughs> there was a theory, the Pythian, that, that was the Oracle of yeah. Delphi. There was a theory for a while. They think that probably wasn't true, because she probably would have just died. But <laughs> but plenty of them did certainly burn lots of herbs and stuff. And man, you hang around that long enough and it'll <laughs> start to get to you. To me, it's 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 funny when like prophecies uh, like also take on like more so like a modern meaning. Like, do you guys remember back in 2012, everyone thought the world was going to end because the Mayan calendar ended at that time. Yes. And you're thinking like, why are we looking at this ancient, like, you know, and this is where we start to see interpretation, like prophecy, like forget SFF, like it's happening in our real world right now. And which, in which ways like people, some people were freaking out like, oh my gosh, the world's ending. Other people were indifferent. Other people were like, why are we looking at this civilization that's like no longer around anymore? Like, why do we give them any any value or any worth in like what they've written? Um, and that's like something that like, hello, your characters are doing the same thing in the book. There's a prophecy that, uh, you know, some man man's going to come and kill everyone. You're like, hmm, is that true though? Yeah, but we don't have a... <laughs> We don't have a date, though. That's the thing. There was no math. <laughs> with with the with the Mayan one, it was like, if you actually understood what it was, like, this is not the end of the world. This is just, like, Super New Year's, where the calendar yeah, resets. Just, yeah, we, you just need a new wall calendar and <laughs> yeah. a bigger rock to carve it on. A bigger rock. We just we ran out of room on this rock, and uh, it's time for a new rock. But yeah, like, there's there's there are things like that. I feel like... I actually feel like there were some running up to 2020 for some reason, and then 2020 being what it was. I don't know. Maybe they weren't totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe that wasn't completely out there. 
It was a few years too early. It was just slightly off. We, we, 2020, we just had so many people be going like, this is going to be my year. And like, fuck you. You jinxed it for us. Jinxed everyone. I was like, 2020, like 2020 vision, like playing on all the puns. And I was like, this is going to be amazing. Like, it'll be great. And then the pandemic happened and the world changed so much, um, as we all know. Um, And I think like, it's interesting because seeing the books that come, that came out of the pandemic, so the pandemic written books and then being published now, seeing that darkness that's in the books mirrored that grew out of the pandemic. Like that was the Phoenix thing. I wrote it during, well, I, I had the idea for like over 13 years, but like it really came to like fruition during 2020. And I was like, huh, all those like fascists, like leaders, like, and like misusing their, you know, nationalism and like misusing their power and like, using religion. I was like, huh, that is so similar to what I want to talk about. It goes back to your question about how, you know, religion and and politics. I think one thing that I've always been like a little uncomfortable about, which I think is a good writerly instinct is like, go where you're uncomfortable. Like, you know, that topic, because that's where you also, I feel like seek truth as a storyteller is more so of how when like religious leaders set the parameters of belief, so say, for example, we have we have the Pope, um, you have like different religious leaders who say like, this is how we conduct ourselves. This is how we're going to eat. This is what we're going to eat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in sci-fi, you can see how that can almost drain away from how the characters like interact with one another like I think you were saying Cass earlier with, like with the Greeks and the Romans like sorry the Senate can't meet today because it's x y and z what if someone can't meet today because of some religious like and you can't meet with this group because of some religious debacle that's set to arrive on this day to me like that's where we is like how much trust do we put in these religious leaders for creating these parameters which we know in the goods of our heart is actually harmful for us you know like that to me is like where we get into the crux of the argument of like are you are you a free thinker are you buying into that system like where where are you like where do you place yourself in this you know dilemma you were saying earlier about religious manipulation and like using religion to to get certain things and one an example i love of that is is one where the the religion then starts to manipulate back in a song of ice and fire in the the book series that gave us game of thrones um for its sins um, <laughs> the, in the book series, the 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 same plotline sort of plays out in the TV show, but you see more of the the machinations behind it, and because you see a lot more of the religion in the books. And when Cersei starts developing the the High Sparrow, who is the the high leader of their faith, he's essentially their pope, and his like he has also been cultivating a lot of religious fanatics and she starts trying to use them for her means to get rid of Marjorie Terrell and all this stuff. And then she loses control of it. And the high sparrow turns on her. And like, that's such a, it's such a great moment of like, Oh, you thought that politics was using religion, but religion was also using politics. And now you're screwed. (laughs) Now you're big, big screwed. And I just thought, I thought it was so, so much fun because I 
I love and hate religious fanaticism. I love it as a plot device, but it terrifies me. Anytime I encounter it in a book, I'm like, oh, this is going to get so bad so fast. <laughs> so many dystopian novels have that that element of the fanaticism, and it's like, oh, this is going to go to such dark places. I'm terrified, but I'm, I'm eager for it in fiction. In fiction. <laughs> in fiction. I like that. In fiction only. In reality, I do not enjoy seeing it. But it is a fascinating impulse, like both what creates the fanatic drive, which usually comes out of like times of conflict and things like that, and then the impulse that people in power have to try to use it, and how often that just the wheels come off that bus real fast, I feel like. Yeah, it's almost like the religion... It, it, it's, it's it's your consequences that's how easy like you know that's the way to put it it's like it's just your consequences coming to bite you in the ass but i think what, what's also like really interesting as a writer is like when um you kind of give that religion a voice um so like either through the god through a prophet and uh, you get to see like just kind of off culture that you know that entity is from like the human experience so um what i really loved going back into um circe by madeline miller um i a great interpretation reinterpretation of of the myths what i really loved that madeline miller did is like the way that the gods spoke because they weren't like Mm, very clearly they're not human and the way that they spoke felt like like it felt cold it felt apathetic um and it felt removed. Like you could just tell on the page that these people weren't entirely human and yet we deify them. And yet we think they are the epitome of, of success, of beauty, of whatever, you know, they stand for in, you know, of the forest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to me, like, that's really interesting. It's like, when do we pull back the veneer? You know, when the characters really see that, I was like, wait, why this person or this entity that I'm supposed to revere is not entirely human and rather than being afraid like i should be i'm still paying penance you know and like that's when you start to see like everything unraveling and that to me like that's the fun part like that's the fun part where you start to see um the characters really get into that darkness well one of the other things i think that i think we don't see as much is when the creation of the religion itself is an explicit act of politics like i think we we talked about this like a little bit in our religion episode of like like where where is the episode, where is the fantasy book that is that that world's council of nicaea or something like that where it's <laughs> where it is this sort of deliberate like you know like what okay we're gonna put together the book what's the book gonna be or something like that or you know I feel like that would have a very niche audience <laughs> of readers it'd be, it'd be incredibly them, niche but... But, but you and i are in that niche we would be we would be and so thus no publisher will will touch it i would love to see you know i I like seeing it more when the members of the religion are as much political animals and the 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 process of the religion even if it is coming from a sincere place like even like with game of ice and fire like i never doubted that the high sparrow was sincere in, oh no, like, he's he's all in. Like, yeah. and to me that makes him scarier. Like, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like he could have done the political thing instead and had just as much power as he had. Like, like it would not have cost him anything except that didn't actually fit what he actually believed. And to an extent, that that was also his downfall. That he's like, 
he did all these things to Cersei that who did not actually believe at all. And, yeah. Well, it was his downfall in the show. We have yet yeah, to see. We've yet to see in the books. Book. I, I sometimes <laughs> yet to see, yet to see. Who knows? Maybe, maybe someday we'll see. <laughs> maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> it was one of the things that bothered me in the show so much, though, and that's a long list, but. Um, one of the, we should have a special episode that is just oh my god that'd be such a good just ranting this one particularly though is about religion it's pointed I had a point is that Cersei in the show blows up the Sept of Baelor with the High Sparrow in it and a bunch of the other religious officials destroys essentially the 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 Vatican of of their culture and nothing ever comes of that we don't see in the show anybody really react to it and i feel like if you're a common person and this has just happened in in your city (laughs) that's a big deal but the show just completely glossed over it and did not explore that even a little which which just bothers me because it's like you did such a big thing with so many consequences (laughs) and then there were none yeah, it's not like you could actually hide it. Like she, they couldn't hide no. that it was destroyed. No, like if you if she just poisoned some people, you can you can brush that under the rug. But she blew up a major monument of the city while murdering a bunch of people. A lot <laughs> who were of very people. important to the faith. A lot of people. Which, I mean, you can see that like. For, say, the average citizen, they might be like, well, clearly we are in the Cersei dictatorship now. And if she's willing to do that, she's willing to do, she's certainly willing to murder me. So I'm going to keep my head down. <laughs> but we don't even see but that. But we don't like, see that. Nothing. Like, you, ha- you have nothing. to. They just forget it happened. You have to like... take that interpretation rather than it being something that they give you. Yeah. I mean, it is it is an easy interpretation to get to, but at the same time, it'd be nice to. It... It had built up such an interesting thing around the religion in that culture and then just dropped that ball completely. Bummer. Yeah. I think it goes back to that point of like, you know, if say like if they did make a point of like the common man figuring out like, you know, oh my gosh, like she destroyed the the high powers of our religion. Like, are the gods going to strike her down? Like, is there going to be real world consequences? What do they think is going to happen? Like, do they rise up? So I think like that's where we like I think that's really interesting because it goes back to their earlier conversation of like what do you believe in and like how far down the rabbit hole are you where like are you so like inundated or uh, and like in some stories you know people are brainwashed either by the lingo or by you know the beliefs of believing like anything that happens by you know we used to think like kings were had a God-given right yeah. to rule, you know, like a couple hundred years ago. We used to believe kings were like remnants of gods. Uh, and that anything that they did, even if they killed like other kings or if they, like, you know, colonized other people or if like, you know, they had the power of the church behind them. So whatever they did was deemed holy and right. And I think what's interesting is like when, say a common man, like in in, in the series or like even in our world, when we start to question of like, is this just that's where we get to like understand about religion because religion is supposed to teach us what is just what is good what is right and then when you see the real world consequences of the people who are supposedly the leaders 
of this religion, using the religion in unjust ways, the splintering starts to happen. You know, and, and I, to me, like, that's where it's like, what's going to, like, are you not going to pay attention to that? Or do you, are you going to willfully look away that it's splintering because you're so encased within the luxury of your own c- confinement of this religion? Of Like, it brings me so much comfort to know, like, no matter what happens, because it's the king, I don't care what he's doing. Like, he will do whatever he needs to do because he was given the God-given right. And I don't care what he's doing because the gods told me that he is the right one. Or are you going to wake up and understand Cersei <laughs> literally bombed everyone. Um, should we really like do? Should we fight against her? So I think like that's like where we. I, to me, like that's like why aren't we writing stories about that? Why aren't we seeing more pushback? Uh, I think it takes a lot of courage, um, especially like going up against religious systems. But I think like in in the safety of your own novel, you can do a lot more <laughs> with that. <laughs> like- You'll be safe in your book. The flip side of that is also true that that in that case, like the the high sparrow was so deep in his faith that he believed he could push Cersei as far as he wanted to push her because because God was on his side and he was right. And this is and this is all you know, like within the bounds of of their system that, you know, she has to do this penance and all that and not realize that, no, she doesn't give a fuck. She, you know, the fear of God, do, it means not nothing her. <laughs> to her. And so therefore, that that thing you think is protecting you does not exist. Not so much. Not so much. <laughs> well, it makes me, like, the things, other things I would have wanted to explore is, like, right, like you were saying, like, if if that can happen to, to our high priest, if it can happen to our holy building... Do our gods not have the power that we thought they had? And would you then see a lot of conversions to a different faith back to the old gods or to the red god who's sort of a new, like it's a small cult figure in King's Landing, but oh, what if suddenly people are like, hmm, I should probably check this god out since my old gods didn't do the job of protecting that I thought they were supposed to. And and that kind of social element Um I, I don't know if the Lord of Light see. is right, but I do know that guy came back from the dead many, many times. A lot of times. <laughs> so, worth checking out? Don't get me started on Lord of Light. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a prophecy element too, right? Like the, the prince who was promised, and once again, promised by whom? But by promised whom to do was what? This prince promised. <laughs> and promised to do what? And that's another fun thing in that series too, I think, is watching so many different factions try to interpret that prophecy in their favor and they're all very sure they're right and it's like well clearly not all of you are maybe none of you are i don't know because he hadn't finished the books (laughs) but that that element is more fun that like here is this thing that is so open to interpretation and you have different people interpreting it differently and it can and And of course they're all going to try to spin it to their own right and that is not it's not mutually exclusive from truly believing it. Like, just right. because you're using it for political ends doesn't mean you don't also fervently believe it. Um, yeah, that's just such a fun thing to, to play with. To me, my, my biggest gripe sometimes when it comes to prophecies is the prophecy of the chosen one. Of yeah. like, this, this somehow this utter belief who chose? that one person, yeah, who chose, first of all, who chose him or her or they? Like, you know, why do they choose them and what are they going to do? That's that's one set of questions. And I think the other one's like, why one person? I think like as humans, we have this like we have this tendency to believe one man can change the world. And when we look at history, it's like, ah, took an mm-hmm. army, 
took a kingdom, <laughs> like it took several people for Alexander the Great to conquer and build his empire. It wasn't just him. Just one dude marching across Persia. <laughs> Doop to do. Just it wasn't just him. And so I think we we believe in this fallacy. I think it also builds into our religious and these ideas of prophecy. Like there's only one guy who is going to change the world. To me, I was like, that's a load of bull. Like, because we <laughs> have never seen in our history, yeah. like personally in the human world, uh, to see one person change the world. We, there are always leaders, I will say. There's always leaders. There's always people who set the example. But we can't forget that they had their supporters. Without their supporters, they are nothing. Without the people, you know, leading, um, helping them with their journeys, influencing them, they wouldn't be who they are. Um, so I personally, like, you know, have always believed, like, in the power of three. And that's, I don't know if, like, that's more so um, because in Hinduism, there's a three Murthy or the three Dev, which is, like, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Like, we have, who are basically part of one entity of Brahma, but it's, it's manifested in three different ways that creates one whole one soul being. To me, like that, there's a bit more harmony in that idea, and that's what I, and what I love about SFF is like, okay, your God chose one. What if our God chose one? What if that God <laughs> yeah. chose one? Instead of being like, you have a playing field of all these chosen ones. What's gonna happen? You know, like that's like that's exciting. Like, okay, go, like go at it. I want to see you guys tear <laughs> each other apart. <laughs> I would love to see a book with like 50 different people who are legitimately the chosen one, like <laughs> all like in the same place and at odds with each other because <laughs> they were chosen by different sources. Yeah, that would be a fun satire, I think for sure. Just a football field full of them. Just <laughs> it was like, chosen, chosen. <laughs> I mean, I know um, Kevin Hearn and Delilah Dawson did their sort of riff on the Chosen One sort of thing yeah. with uh, Kill the Farm Boy, but but I, I don't know if they did the thing of multiple of who the Chosen One is is kind of no. confusing. It also makes me think like chosen to do what? Like we always assume like chosen to save the world or or end the Dark Lord or whatever. But like bring what if balance chosen... to the Force. Oh God, don't get me started. Um, that's another one for the don't get me started file. But what if you're like chosen to be the best fishmonger like <laughs> you could be chosen by a god to be that like that'd be that'd be that'd be a funny part of it too for me <laughs> the web comic Oglaf does a beautiful thing because those not familiar with it it is a web comic that basically like plays on tropes of fantasy but also makes it very dirty and sexy at the same time love that i i it is delightful and has delightfully good world building including the, a guy who is basically cursed but chosen at the same time to be the best in the world at blowjobs. Oh my god. <laughs> well, that's an awkward thing to put on a calling card. And for a while, he's just like... <laughs> like, at one point, he's like, yeah, this is supposedly true. I don't even know. And then when this conqueror comes and, like, his whole thing is, you know, who, he who satisfies me the most is like... I guess it's my moment, and then he becomes king. <laughs> Good for him. He's owning it. Yeah. Yeah. So your time has come. Your time has come. Yeah, I think it's funny because when we think of the chosen trope, you would think that, oh, if you're chosen to do this high and mighty thing, but what if you're chosen to do 
an ordinary thing. Uh, what if you were chosen to just be the best, you know, like be a good father? Uh, hello, like, why, why can't we have prophecies like that? Like, you know, where you're just supposed to be like, you're chosen to be a good parent. I was like, okay, that's my role in life. Um, I think that we always have this tendency to like aspire for greatness um, in our prophecies, in our characters, for ourselves. But I think there's a lot of beauty in the ordinary as well that shouldn't be ignored by our prophecies or by ourselves. It's some short fiction, and I can't remember what it is, but then it got made into a Twilight Zone episode in the 80s where this guy is basically chosen to to save the world but the way he has to save the world is this weird is basically by being weird and you know mundane and weird that he has to like just basically keep all these weird objects in a room like aligned a certain way and like he has to like you know i have to find a paperclip and i have to put the paperclip here it's like oh i have to find a cuckoo clock and i have to put the cuckoo clock here and then and like just maintain this like hoarder room that looks bizarre and only (laughs) makes sense to him but that is what is saving the world the guy who like the social service guy who's just like we have to help this person and they like come come into this apartment's like no sir we have to and like knock over one thing it's like oh there goes new delhi he's like what are you talking about and then the next day, like literally, uh, a tsunami like destroys New Delhi, and it's like, oh wait, what the fuck? But then that guy dies, and so then the social worker suddenly realizes it's now on him. Oh no! And then he's like, he like then puts something. He's like, there, that's right. Now I just need a stapler. <laughs> and, and like he realized that the sort of like the chosen one curse had passed on to him. <laughs> Gets passed along. Yeah, it's a heavy burden. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it is. And I, I would like I would like to see more where the chosen one is more is more burden than than glory. Not to ruin the plot, but that's where the Phoenix King and the trilogy is heading. <laughs> nice, you know, like I there's this one part, and Excellent. I'm so glad that one one reader got it. Like where there's this, um, it was I remember I was putting it in, and I was like, ask editor, is this too much? Like, is this too like much of a red herring? Like, am I waving it too? Like, you know, um. And it was like a part of like a, a quote in front of a chapter, but the the characters talk about of how the world started with three types of fire. Of fires because, hello, Phoenix King, there's lots of fire and infernos. <laughs> um, but, and it ends with three types of fires. So it, it, when the characters who believe and revere the Phoenix come to learn that the Phoenix fire is not the only fire that exists to create the world it has consequences on their beliefs but also of like who they believe is the prophet mm. and if there's more you know there's more than just a prophet so to me like that like that it was like heck yeah like that's of course like there's no way one man can change the world i mean also one woman like we need a bit more uh, we need more hands on deck because burdening like sharing the burden of the world on yourself is is a lot um and now i want you guys to be at each other's throats so let's see how that how fun that's gonna be <laughs> we need more of the chosen thruple yeah <laughs> you know you should just change the podcast episode to the chosen thruple oh <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it'd be great <laughs> that would be great and as great as it would be to keep going with that we are we're we've blown past our hour which you know nobody is keeping us to an hour but still <laughs> So then, 
as is our tradition whenever we have a guest on the show uh we have been building a world on air in five years we've been doing this and so we invite you to add some bit of lore or trivia or other ingredient to that world that that we will get incorporated into it so what do you have for us Saparna? there's this prophecy yes i'm shocked <laughs> what what no one could have seen this coming <laughs> <laughs> There's a prophecy that the chosen one will show up on the Texas Cowboy football field uh, <laughs> on Christmas Day. And then Christmas Day rolls around and suddenly you have 50 linebackers coming in <laughs> saying, I'm the chosen one. And then you have 50 quarterbacks coming in like, no, I'm the chosen one. And then you have 50 other guys say, no, nah, I'm the chosen one. So now you have a football, several football teams saying they're the chosen ones and now they have to duke it out as natural on a second supreme super bowl <laughs> i love that i love i love a religious reason for the super bowl to be a thing to de- to determine it's a religion the truth. It, it i mean it, was, it, it sort of is a high holiday for a lot of people um but i love it being literalized as to determine who is the true chosen one that's great <laughs> I mean, there are the appropriate rituals. There is the observations of, of the you know things that must happen within within the course of the Super Bowl. Like mm-hmm. we must we must have the special commercials. We must have the halftime show. <laughs> you must have the anthem yes. sung by Tradition- some star. Traditional food and drink. Traditional food and drink. Traditional tailgating. That's the best part. <laughs> Oh, that's something somebody needs to write awesome. with. Well, that's fun. That's... I'm just, I'm just imagining like some sort of post-apocalyptic cannibal for Leibowitz <laughs> thing, but where the things that they have, you know, taken as their faith are just like the Super Bowl Sunday has become. <laughs> I mean, it's not illogical. It's not illogical. You could. You I, could... I feel like an alien species observing us and making guesses would, would, would hone in on that be like the super bowl playoffs <gasps> like it's a religious ritual yeah i think that'd be really fun playoffs are just advent really i mean that's it's <laughs> it's the echoes we were talking at we see we brought it around we started talking early in the episode about the echoes between different faiths and <laughs> now we've got it with football i Excellent. had this i had this book that was like looking at humans but more specifically american culture as if it was you know, looking at it from the outside, from like an anthropological, and made the act of a family deciding what show they're going to watch on TV into a religious ritual. <laughs> so it's like, because like the TV is in a holy place, and then there is the holy book, which is the TV guide, and the father looks through the book and says, what day is it? And the, the, everyone replies, it's Tuesday. <laughs> I love that. We need more, we need more thing, of that sort of thing. Well, this has been an absolute delight to have you here, Aparna. I always, always love talking to you about all sorts of things because you're just a brilliant human being. <laughs> Aww, well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>